if we could have a different week. Um, and so I, he, he uh, obliged, and I looked at the passage that I was assigned in its place, and I sort of had to laugh because it's almost exactly the same passage I was assigned two weeks ago. Um, the majority of today's text, as you might remember, repeats sometimes word for word the passage that we studied last week and the week before as Peter tells um, the other Christians in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians, what he had experienced with Cornelius. And if you're reading the book of Acts, I think it can sometimes feel a little repetitious as you're reading it. Um, there's a lot of, uh, of stories that are told again and again. Um, but I think it's important for us to remember that for centuries, uh, Christians wouldn't necessarily, many Christians wouldn't have read the text as we read it today, but they would have heard it read to them. If the audience can't simply flip back and try to remember what they just read, that when a writer needs to emphasize something important, they often do it through repetition. And this happens in oral cultures, but it also happens even in speeches and in theater today. As many of you know, I work um, trying to preserve theater. Um, the playwright Alfred Urey, who wrote Driving Miss Daisy and Mystic Pizza, the movie, um, he, has, he talks whenever he teaches playwriting about how Shakespeare often uh, tries to emphasize important plot points by telling them three times. So if you know the story of Macbeth, um, the characters say, oh, Lady Macbeth is acting crazy. And then we see a scene in which she's acting crazy. And then we're told later that she died because she was acting crazy. So, it, uh, so I think the same kind of thing is happening in Acts uh, today. And uh, as uh, I think you, you might know, Paul, the, the, story, uh, the stories that are repeated are often the really important ones. So we've heard about how Paul becomes a Christian or encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. And we're told that story in the narrative, but then Paul tells that story two more times in the book of Acts, and the uh, repetition is almost word for word, because it's a really important story. Um, and the story of Cornelius's uh, conversion is also super important. In fact, it's probably one of the most important stories in the entire New Testament after the resurrection and the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Uh, Dick said last week, this is the moment where Christianity moves beyond being a Jewish sect to becoming a worldwide movement, that, the worldwide movement that it is today. But as Jillian read, this time when the story is told, it begins with a story of suspicion. Peter has just experienced one of the most pivotal moments in church history. Um, but when he goes back home to his fellow believers in Jerusalem, he's met with concern. They accuse him of acting improperly. Because so far, those who believe in Jesus are entirely Jewish. And for some of them, the decision to commit to calling a crucified guy from Nazareth, the long-promised Messiah, is probably a, a pretty uncomfortable theological leap. If you grew up hearing that one day, one day the Messiah will come back, or will come, and will return the kingdom of Israel, uh, return the kingdom of Israel to Jewish leaders as it was in the days of King David, deciding that this guy, this guy who definitely died and a few people say come back to life, is the Messiah, is probably not quite the Rome-defying Messiah, Messiah you've been hoping for. And it's probably a kind of uncomfortable shift in your worldview. And on top of that, if you live in Jerusalem, you've by now been cast out of your synagogue, your church family, because of your beliefs. And maybe, whenever, and maybe your friends and family have started to shun you as well. And so you, you keep saying, look, I'm not really that different. I'm sure I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but I still keep kosher. I still keep the Sabbath. I believe in the Bible. And because I believe in the Bible, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I, the Old Testament tells me that the person that we're looking for is this Jesus. I'm really not that different, you might say to your family and friends. 
But now Peter, this guy who lived, who walked around with Jesus and is one of the main leaders in your church community, is starting to act like the faith-deserting person everyone has been accusing you and your family of being. He's now eating with Gentiles. He's now starting to act like he's not a Jew anymore. And if you think back to what Jesus said, um, he, he said that the law was still important, and maybe you keep repeating that to your friends and family. Jesus said, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. But heaven and earth are still around. And Peter seems to be setting aside the commands of God. This had to be pretty upsetting. Often when we... When I hear the story of Cornelius uh, in sermons as I was growing up, and uh, it's often a, a story about overcoming kind of racial prejudice or economic prejudice. It's a story about um, trying to apply uh, the seriousness of what Peter learns in Acts 10. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And I think it's right to think of this as a passage to, um, to combat our, our tendency towards making people that are different from us other or not fully uh, someone that we accept. But I think there's something even more difficult going on in this passage. It's not just about accepting those who are different from us. There's also actually a change in the way that scripture is interpreted. We're told that Cornelius um, gave, regularly gave uh, to those the poor and prayed regularly, but he's still a Gentile, and that would make him unclean. He would uh, have, as Dick said uh, last week, he would have been in situations and eaten food that would have made him unclean. And Le Leviticus 11 is pretty clear that God's people must be holy. They miss, must not do these things. After giving uh, his people, God, after God gave his people a list of animals, like Peter saw in the sheep that came down from heaven three times, God tells his people through Moses, do not defile yourselves by any of these creatures. Do not make yourselves unclean by means of them or be made unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself and be holy, because I am holy. Do not make yourself unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Therefore, be holy, because I am holy. And in Exodus 12, God tells the people that circumcision is the only way a Gentile might, may participate in the kingdom of God, and the community of God. God commands a foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may uh, participate like one born in the land, but no uncircumcised male may eat it. But now Peter is going in and eating with the Gentiles, and he seems to be setting aside more than the least of God's commands. When I was in college, there was a group of guys who had a Christian band. And they would play on and around campus and in different venues. And they were also the worship leaders at a Baptist church in town. Now, I wasn't Baptist, so I didn't attend their church. And I don't really know the nuances of this situation. But the story, as I heard it, was that they were asked to step down as worship leaders when it came to the attention of some in the church leadership that they were occasionally playing in bars. 
the band argued that they were bringing the gospel to the bar. Um, but the church leaders, if I remember correctly, felt that worship leaders and the church were meant to set a good example. And in their minds, playing in a bar could possibly lead young college believers astray or uh, misrepresent the holiness of God. It's a story that I suspect many of us have heard in various ways and in various iterations. It happens a lot. That kind of thing happens a lot. And it's, maybe some of us think of it as um, just that was probably the right decision. Maybe some of us think that it's profoundly sad. But it's not unfamiliar. Since at least the 19th century, many American Christians have been influenced, whether we realize it or not, by something called the holiness movement. It came out of the Methodist uh, church, and it has a complicated history. But to oversimplify it, the idea is that after you become a Christian, you're actually working towards a second miracle of God in which you're made entirely free of sin. And that can happen, according to this um, theology, even while you're still in your human body. The markers of holiness as defined by this movement include dressing modestly, abstaining from alcohol, gambling, profane language, dancing, and going to the theater. Um, and in most American contexts, it's actually, it's actually uh, revised to, um, uh, to be avoiding uh, R-rated movies, or sometimes movies in general, but it's generally R-rated movies. And if a person becomes a, a Christian in a church like this, they don't have to stop drinking or going to the theater or swearing before they're baptized, but it's expected that they will do so pretty quickly after they've been, uh, become part of the church and are beginning to be sanctified by God. And I actually grew up in a church that was sort of like this. It wasn't Methodist. It wasn't explicitly a holiness church, but it was very much influenced by the holiness movement. I grew up, though, in St. Louis, Missouri, which is, as you probably know, it's in the, it's in the midst of the Midwest, which is painted by many of us on the East Coast as in kind of this big brush strokes as being this kind of uh, uniform blob of uh, conservatism. conservatism. Um, but actually in St. Louis, it's sort of unusual in that um, about half of those, actually over, over half of those who claim any religion at all are Catholic. And uh, some of the markers of holiness in the church, the evangelical church that I grew up in, were strong cultural differentiators from the Catholics who drank alcohol during their Sunday services and actually also had parties. There was a big St. Patrick's Day party that would happen right across the street um, from the church that I went to in my senior year of, of high school, and there was lots of drinking there. Um, they also often held bingo nights where real money was gambled. Um, and so the markers of holiness for us in the evangelical church helped us to define um, and differentiate ourselves from those in the larger uh, St. Louis culture. If someone, if you noticed that someone, um, you know, used fake swear words, didn't really swear, um, and uh, never went to parties where alcohol was present and, and didn't dance, um, then, and especially if they, they sort of declined, if you were, if, if there's a group that was going to go see a movie, an R-rated movie like Glory, the Civil War movie that everybody was seeing, um, anyway, uh, then maybe it was sort of like a secret handshake that they might be one of you, they might be one of the, the, the Christians. We didn't really think of these markers of holiness as cultural, though. The, we, we thought that all of these things were in the Bible. In fact, many of them are. Paul tells Timothy, I want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. Though actually, if you read the passage, it seems like he's talking about dressing in a way that avoids showing off wealth rather than uh, being sexually provocative. In uh, Colossians, he writes, uh, but you also must rid yourself of all things such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. In Galatians, Paul writes, those that engage in acts of the flesh, such as drunkenness, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Gambling's a little trickier, but it's what's considered being an unfaithful steward of the resources that God gave us. 
and going to an R-rated movie risked looking at a woman lustfully and so committing adultery in one's heart. And I suspect many of us um, are familiar with these arguments. Many, maybe a lot of us grew up in churches like this or even still subscribe to some of this theology. And I don't mean in any way to belittle the importance of pursuing the holiness of God. It's really, really important. However, for those of us who have lived in this culture, who grew up in this culture, I can tell you that it's a lot easier to maintain these outward signs of holiness than it is to keep the commands that appear more frequently in Scripture. Listed right in the same list of things that will uh, keep you from entering the kingdom of God with drunkenness, for instance, is the instruction that those who engage in hatred or discord or jealousy or fits of rage or selfish ambition or dissensions or factions and envy, those all will not inherit the kingdom of God either. And Jesus warned those who listened to his sermons, not that they would have to give up their theater tickets, but that they would have to give up everything to follow him. We should consider what holiness means. So, as I think most of us know, the, the New Testament is written in Koine Greek and the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And in, so there's two different words uh, in the languages in which the Bible is written that are translated as holy. In Greek, the word hagios, which we get the word hagiography, a saint's life, is uh, a story. Uh, it's, a, it's a word about, that kind of implies something set apart that's special. Um, it's, it's different from the common things. In Hebrew, the word kadesh has uh, the same, sorry, it's a different kind of meaning. It's something that's washed or clean. So the two meanings in scripture are something that's special, set apart, and something that is washed or made clean. And remember what happens in Peter's vision. God says to him, don't call impure or unclean anything that God has made clean. Don't call unholy what God has made holy. We need to be clean, but we need to understand what is actually dirty. Jesus himself gave examples when the Pharisees uh, complained that his disciples were being unclean by eating with unwashed hands. Jesus said, don't you see that whatever enters your mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body, but the things that come out of a person's mouth, mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, sexual adultery, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. And we are actually also called to be separate in the, the Greek sense of the word holy. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians quotes Isaiah where he says, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. But here it's in the context of not being yoked with unbelievers. Uh, that is, belief in Christ makes us uh, into a sort of separate community that separates us sometimes from the rest of the culture. Um, but God has also eliminated certain kinds of separation based on acts of the law. Part of the point of the law in the Old Testament is to make God's people separate. Um, Exodus 31, for instance, uh, says that the reason for the Sabbath is that it will be a sign between me, God, and you, the uh, Israelites, for generations to come, so that you may know that I'm the Lord who makes you holy. Jesus, however, has allowed everyone to come to God and is beginning to break down the kinds of separations that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. Um, Dick quoted Ephesians last week, and I think it's a good passage to look at again. Um, Paul writes, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that which is done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to make in himself one humanity out of the, out of the two, thus making peace. And at the end of the passage today, we read that when the, uncircumcised, when the circumcised believers heard Peter's story, um, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then even the Gentiles have been granted repentance that leads to life. And it seems like it's a happy ending, but that phrase, even the Gentiles, suggests that their embrace is not entirely enthusiastic. Think about how you might feel if you were sitting, maybe on a mission trip to somewhere like Iran, and you're sitting there and you've been part of a group where there's been miracles that have been happening, you've been seeing the work of God, and then one of the elders uh, is speaking in gestures to you and says, look, even to the Americans, God has granted these gifts. As I think we'll see in upcoming chapters, the church has to continue to struggle with the implications of what it means that the Gentiles are now part of the church. And here's just a quick preview. In Acts 13, when Paul travels to Poseidon Antioch, he initially has great success in a synagogue there. And when he begin, but when he begins to convert the Gentiles, we, re, we read that the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city to stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they expelled them from the region. And it's interesting that that phrase, God-fearing, I was talking to Ditch just before the, the pass, the, um, the, uh, um, Service, thanks, this is saying ceremony. The service today about what God-fearing exactly means. It might mean that these were the, the Gentile uh, women who were sort of associated with the church, but it also has a sense of these are the kind of good people in the church, and they're the ones who stir up the, um, the people to push against uh, Paul. And even in, back in Jerusalem, so after Paul and Silas do this missionary journey, they come back to the, the mother church, and among the same community that just in this passage today celebrated the conversion of the Gentiles and said, even the Gentiles have, be, uh, seen, have been redeemed by God, it doesn't seem like the integration is going terribly smoothly. Um, we, hear, we read, when they came, that is Paul and Silas, come back to Jerusalem, they're welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the parties of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So allowing the Gentiles to be baptized was fine. Allowing them to, into the church was fine. But then they had to start following the law. They had to start being good religious uh, Jewish Christians. So what can we learn from this? How can we be holy while not calling on clean that which God has made clean? I'm still working through this myself. Um, but I often think through ideas in the shower, and actually yesterday I had this idea in the shower that might be a metaphor um, for how to think about this. So um, I was looking at this shampoo bottle, and uh, I don't know, this is a little embarrassing, but maybe some of you had this experience back when you were a kid. We didn't have cell phones, um, so uh, I would read anything that was in the bathroom when I was using the bathroom. And so I read the back of a lot of shampoo bottles, <laughs> studied it, much like scripture, and um, so I, uh, I, I realized that you really have to follow the directions. Oh, you have to, while you understand, read the, the directions on the back of the shampoo bottle, you have to also apply context to them. And there's a, there's a line on the back of shampoo bottles that's now often quoted in comedy routines that you, uh, in just in general, lather, rinse, repeat. And here it says, uh, massage your head with the, the bubbles or something. And um, 
uh, rinse uh, thoroughly with water. So lather, rinse, repeat. Uh, repeat if necessary, it says here. Uh, but when I was a kid, I was reading this, and I thought, I've been doing it wrong all the time. I've never repeated. Um, and also, I'm a budding computer scientist. I love programming on my Commodore 64, and so I followed rules fairly sequentially. So repeat means go back to the beginning, and there's no stop case here. So I'm like, how, how long do I keep repeating? Do I, is it for the entire bottle or until my head falls off? I don't know. So... Um, so anyway, so but I, I think what I realized is that um, the uh, I have to apply well common sense to what I'm reading, and also the uh, the context that it's um, and also of course I, I understood sort of intuitively even as a ten year old that I wasn't supposed to apply these directions while in the swimming pool or um, washing dishes or something like that. Um, in sort of the same way, I think we need to understand the the context in which scriptural commands are given. The circumcised believers who criticized Peter knew that scripture prohibited a follower of God from eating unclean food. But what they didn't realize is that Jesus had made all food clean. Is a scripture given for a particular time and purpose, but which would be wrong if it's applied in a different purpose or in a different time or for a different purpose? And we, we actually see examples of this in scripture. Remember that Moses actually doesn't get to enter the promised land because he applies a command that he was given in an Exodus, Exodus 17, strike the rock and pull out the water. He applies that command in Numbers 20. He strikes the rock and God says, hey, I didn't say do that, and doesn't let Moses into the promised land because of that. Um, in Peter's vision, God doesn't correct Peter for his desire to be clean but he corrects Peter's lack of understanding that, what is that something has changed, that in Jesus, the entire world is being made clean. And it's tricky to figure out how do we do this. It's, it's a really, really complicated um, work for those of us that, that believe in Scripture. I think it's helpful to remember that Jesus said that the whole law and the prophets are summarized in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. And, um, and love your neighbor as yourself. And are we placing any requirements on new believers beyond that which flows from one of these two commands? Is there a particular behavior or practice that I believe that new believers have to start doing um, that uh, I'm placing on them that I'm not even following myself? As, as uh, the apostles letters say, we haven't been able to keep these laws ourselves. Why are we putting them on the Gentiles? Um, if I do think that there are things that, I, that someone needs to change before they can truly participate in this community, I should have studied and prayed with a truly open heart and tried to understand the context of these passages before insisting on any practice or behavior that keeps someone from participating in the community of Jesus. So to you, back to the shampoo bottle. Um, there's a big, I mean, it's not, nothing is large on here, but the, the largest uh, font on here is for external use only. I suspect the managers wanted to prevent someone from taking two teaspoons of head and shoulders every morning to try to cure their dandruff. Um, but it's also a clear indication that my shower ritual is not going to clean my heart. For that, I need to pursue holiness that comes from the inside out rather than the outside in. I need to train my mind and my emotions to resemble those of Jesus, and that's what should make me stand out. To be, that's what should make me separate. Rather than insisting on a set of behaviors that make Christians different, uh, rather, yeah, rather than uh, uh, insisting on a set of behaviors, external behaviors. It might be that I decide that for me, gambling is a misuse of God's resources. But that distinctiveness, the, the, what people notice about me, shouldn't be the fact that I never go to a casino, but that I'm very generous because I have these additional resources. 
Um, Paul writes to the Philippians that their distinctive qualities should come from how they speak to one another. He writes, do everything without grumbling or arguing. The earlier NIV says complaining or arguing. Uh, so then you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and, warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine among them like stars as you hold firmly to the word of life. We should seek to be distinctive in the way we treat others rather than in our own cleanliness. So what is distinctive about your Christianity? What do you do or don't do now that is different than before you were a Christian? Does anyone attribute any qualities or habits or practices to you because of your faith? You might not always know. I actually had a conversation recently with a friend of mine who's not a Christian. And she mentioned that she, uh, in sort of a disparaging way, she knows I'm very turn-the-other-cheeky. And she's I, I because of your whole religion thing. Um, and, and she seemed kind of impressed but also a little annoyed by it. And I, I share that only because it surprised me because I don't really think of that as a particular quality that I would describe myself with. Um, but, uh, and if it is there, it's because of the working of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I'm sure each of you probably have similar qualities that the Lord is making distinctive in you. And I encourage you to find those out and continue to cultivate them. The back of the shampoo bottle tells me one other thing that I'll try to work into this sermon in a sort of tortured way. Um, it says that uh, if anything unexpected happens, I should pause and seek the doctor's advice. Um, <laughs> So, if I develop a rash or whatever. Um, and likewise, I think there are times when God may be showing us the working of his grace in unexpected ways and in unexpected places. And then we should seek our great physician God's advice in how we re react rather than simply dismissing these things uh, and just pushing on and continuing to use the shampoo. If someone tells us that the work of God, there is a work of God, of God among those we believe are opposed to our faith, we should practice listening with an open heart and fight, fight against our natural pre prejudices. Is there any group that you would op oppose joining the church with no change in their behavior? Or are there practices um, that if Dick came to us and told us um, that there were miraculous works happening among those who practice these things that you would feel uncomfortable with? Is there any group that you would be afraid to be seen with for fear of what other Christians might think? Is there a group of people or a movement that you wouldn't want our pastor or our elders or our MST members to appear in a Facebook photo with? If so, I, I encourage you to carefully consider why you have those feelings. I imagine some of you are thinking of specific answers and specific examples to these questions. And if you'd like to talk about this, I'd love to join you in the discussion group after Sunday school. But for now, though, let's pray that God will continue to underline to all of us what he showed Peter that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right.